BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Ross Douthat, and this is The Argument. If you've ever taken the time to read this podcast's description, you'll know that our mission is to host arguments from across the political spectrum. If you listen to the show every week, you'll also notice that I'm usually holding up the rightmost end of our debates. But not this week. While my more liberal co-hosts, Michelle and Frank, are on vacation, I'm conducting a temporary right-wing coup. I've asked two writers who are somewhat to my right, meaning, among other things, mostly pro-Trump rather than never-Trump, to join the show. We'll talk about the president, the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter protests, the 2020 elections, and the future of conservatism. First is Dan McCarthy, the editor of Modern Age, a conservative quarterly of ideas, a director of journalism fellowships at the Fund for American Studies, and a frequent Times op-ed contributor. He's also been a guest on this show. Dan, welcome back. Thanks, Ross. And joining Dan is Helen Andrews, who is a senior editor at the American Conservative and the author of Boomers, The Men and Women Who Promised Freedom and Delivered Disaster, which is out next January. Helen, thanks so much for coming on The Argument. Thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome. So let's talk about some issues where I can hopefully play the totally unaccustomed role of moderate squish. So I thought we could start with how President Trump has handled the coronavirus crisis. Because given that he's currently seven or eight or nine points down in the polls to Joe Biden, I suspect that we can all agree that he could have handled it better. But since both of you have been somewhat skeptical of lockdowns and other tough public health measures, I also suspect that we disagree about what a better strategy would have been. So starting with you, Dan, what do you think the president could have done differently over the last five months or so? Well, you know, I don't think there's any kind of um, silver bullet here. Uh, If we look at the responses that other countries have had to COVID-19, while there are places you can point to that have had considerable success, there are places that are very different from the United States that have leadership uh, that is very different. Places like Sweden, for example, places like the United Kingdom, where you have a conservative leader, but one who can recite uh, the Iliad, uh, you know, from memory, quite a contrast from Donald Trump, perhaps. There are places like, uh, you know, Italy, which has, you know, a government that's always rather rickety. You can see a wide swath of different governments responding in different ways to COVID-19, and a great many of them are getting it wrong. And the ones that have gotten it right, even they are starting to have uh, resurgences of the virus and other difficulties. So I just don't know that there is anything Donald Trump could have done that would have been the one right way of approaching this. Uh, And of course, this is something where the role of the governors in our 50 states is also of the utmost importance, and in fact is of rather more importance uh, than the president himself. Perhaps the easiest thing to say about what the president could have done is to perhaps act as psychiatrist-in-chief, not as physician-in-chief, but someone who could have made some reassuring statements that might have made people uh, simply feel better about this crisis. But I don't think that would have had much practical effect. It seems to me that some of these uh, crises that we're facing are um, acts of God. They are things that uh, it's very hard for any kind of leadership Uh, simply to overcome. That's some pretty deep fatalism, Dan. 
Helen, I'm hoping that you will make a more explicit case for why we should have simply gone full Sweden. Uh, unfortunately, I'm going to have to disappoint you there um, and also to uh, disagree with the premise of your question. I don't think the president has handled the coronavirus crisis badly. I think he's actually handled it pretty well. One of the great frustrations for people who generally like and support this president is that he seems to be someone who has a hard time understanding that often the correct response to a situation is to say nothing. Uh, he, he seems to have a real problem grasping that sometimes silence is the best policy. But here, with the coronavirus, he seems to have finally grasped that lesson. He hasn't made himself the point man on every policy question. Uh, and I think that that's a good thing, because a lot of this is stuff that should be decided by governors anyway. So there's no reason for a president to have a position on, you know, a national mask mandate or something like that. Uh, and there are a lot of things that we know now uh, that we wouldn't know um, about comparisons between different strategies because we allowed a diversity of responses on the part of different states. Um, so I think the fact that the president has left space for that to happen is actually a pretty good decision on his part. How would you make the case for the president's reelection in the context of, let's say, by the time the fall rolls around, up to 200,000 or so deaths from the coronavirus. Because I think it's fair to say that if you had flashed back to, say, February or early March, when we were first having conversations slash panics about COVID-19, um, that if you had said, well, over the course of the next six months, 200,000 Americans are going to die from this disease, a lot of people would have assumed that the president's reelection efforts were doomed. And I, I don't think either of you think his re-election effort is doomed. Well, his re-election chances aren't doomed, but um, there is a limit to what uh, any president can do uh, in the face of certain public assumptions, which are of an almost divine nature, right? So uh, I'm a very strong critic of President George W. Bush. I was very much against most of his domestic policies and uh, even more so his foreign policy, especially the Iraq war. One thing, however, that I've generally not blamed President uh, Bush for was his response to Hurricane Katrina. And there were certainly mistakes he made there that were quite big. But um, fundamentally, when you have a natural disaster, the president is not a god. He can't change those uh, outcomes. You know, I mean, sometimes these discussions, uh, it's, it's almost like being a, a medieval priest and uh, you're being confronted by an, you know, sort of angry group of people who say, why didn't the king cure this man's scrofula? And the fact is, well, actually, kings can't cure scrofula. That's um, something beyond their power. So the president is necessarily going to take a hit to his approval ratings and his re-election chances as a result of the COVID-19 crisis. That doesn't mean, however, that there was really much that he could have done one way or the other that would have greatly altered what he could, uh, the response that he would get from whatever actions he might have taken. Now, in terms of uh, what case can be made for his re-election, it's simply that, you know, fundamentally what he had warned us about back in 2016 regarding the possible consequences of globalism have all proven true as a result of the COVID crisis. We've had a, uh, you know, economic collapse that has perhaps been worse than it had to be as a result of our interconnectedness with China and with, the uh, you know, other parts of the world. And, um, of course, the fact that the virus came in from uh, outside of the country is another, uh, you know, sort of point against globalism and point in favor of Donald Trump's fundamental populism and nationalism. So I would say that Donald Trump should reiterate his original 2016 campaign points, his themes, 
and that uh, what we've seen happen, uh, you know, this year, as disastrous as it has been, is in fact a vindication of his early warnings back in 2016. Okay, sure. It's a vindication of his early warnings. But in response to those early warnings, who did we elect president? Seems like we elected Donald Trump president of the United States, right? So, I mean, it, it seems to me that in this crisis, he was indeed handed a challenge whose parameters did sort of vindicate portions of his 2016 worldview. But then once confronted with this challenge, from a reasonable perspective, it seems like he's failed. That seems to be the problem. You're simultaneously saying this is an act of God that no president could hope to deal with. And Trump sort of saw it coming. But if he sort of saw it coming, then it's not just an act of God. It's a predictable challenge that maybe we should have no, been better but, prepared but again, for and Ross, had a response have, to. You know, we have a government of 50 states, not just you know one central federal government. And the central federal go- government that we do have is divided between the president and Congress. Now, you know, I would criticize the president for having sort of lost the initiative early on when he did have control of Congress, but he's had the uh, opposition party in charge of uh, the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives since two years ago. So, you know, while you could say that uh, President Trump, you know, could have had some sort of dictatorial powers and done everything uh, that he might have wished to do, uh, that was never really the case. It certainly has not been the case with respect to the states and their policies, but it hasn't even been the case with respect to the federal government. He had a very short window where he had plenipotentiary power, and that, uh, you know, went by the wayside uh, two years ago. And just to be clear, the mere fact that the coronavirus crisis vindicated many of Trump's campaign policies doesn't necessarily mean that he uh, could have done anything about it once it hit the United States. Uh, I mean, it's it's not as if he can, in the space of a month, make American supply chains less dependent on China. You know, even if in retrospect, if we had done that, we might have been in better shape. The American people will forgive a president for, you know, uh, not controlling things that he's unable to control. They don't expect presidents to be gods. They don't. I would dispute that premise, too, honestly, I think. Yeah, I might agree with you, Ross, well, uh, that perhaps the, they do the expect that... presidents to be gods. <laughs> I mean, I think at <laughs> the very least, the people, though, but, uh, you know. <laughs> at the very least, though, I mean, you know, you compared this to Hurricane Katrina, but COVID-19 is something where it's a rolling crisis, right, where every day in the United States, a certain number of people become infected and every day a certain number of people die. And the choices that are made, the public health choices that are made over the course of those months, presumably have some impact on it. And I think that both of you, but I mean, I I think especially you, Helen, have argued that whether this was Trump's choice or not, that a lot of the choices we made were the wrong choices, that sort of locking down as extremely as we did in the months of March and April was actually the wrong approach. Is that what you think? Uh, That is. But uh, even though I think the lockdowns were probably more extreme than they had to be, I am perfectly willing to make allowances for decision makers who have to operate with imperfect information. I think that you can't expect people to make perfect decisions when they don't yet have all the facts that they need. But we're now a few months into the crisis and we know better what needs to happen next. And so now is the time when I think the American people are going to start grading their politicians a little more toughly on the decisions that they make. And the one thing that they won't forgive is people who make politicized decisions in response to a health crisis, which is why I think the biggest opportunity for the president going forward in terms of how he should handle coronavirus to improve his reelection chances is to focus on schools, uh, because that's definitely a case where you have 
teachers unions and a lot of the pro-lockdown side making decisions that look to a lot of parents like they're politically motivated and also like they'd be perfectly happy to keep schools shut, sometimes it seems indefinitely, and prevent private and charter schools from opening up either. Uh, So taking on the teachers' unions who are making politicized decisions might be a good strategy for the president uh, going forward. Do you think those decisions are politicized in the sense of that they're being made, in effect, to spite the president? Or do you think they're politicized? I mean, it, it seems to me much more that they're made in a spirit of panic and anxiety about the disease that may be overstated or may be sort of missing the importance of having schools open and the importance of balancing that against the public health risk, which is not exactly the same as being politicized. It's more disease anxiety driven. Well, when I look at the list of demands from Randy Weingarten in the AFT, it includes a lot of things that don't have anything to do with education, um, like eviction moratoriums, a policy wish list that you would expect uh, from activist Democrats. Uh, So that's pretty clearly politicized. Uh, And I'm in favor of a diversity of approaches. So if a local school board wants to keep schools closed or remote until November, that's their decision to make. But when I see those same school boards uh, and health uh, county health organizations trying to shut private and charter schools as well and not allowing those schools to make their own decisions uh, and maybe find their own paths forward, that to me does look like teachers unions trying to kneecap their opposition because they're afraid that uh, competition from private schools and religious schools will draw away pupils. So, yeah, I think a lot of parents do detect some politicization in decisions like that. And I think they're right. Right. There was the case just now in in Maryland where they announced that this has since been overturned by the governor, I guess, in defiance of your call for local decision making in some sense, Helen. But they first announced that private and parochial schools would have to stay closed till October 1st. And one of the theories for why they chose that date was that that's the date at which enrollments are set in public schools, and they were hoping to effectively maintain or in- increase public school enrollments for, for budgetary reasons. So I think, I think there's, there's obviously some sort of effective political competition within the education system going on in this totally weird environment. But let me pull you back to the macro level. So fine, let's, you know, you think Trump should be making a kind of campaign on school openings. At the same time, You're saying that, you know, fundamentally, these are local and state decisions, which, of course, they are. So in a sense, you're making an argument for Trump using the bully pulpit, right, using sort of rhetorical powers to make a particular case. But why doesn't that apply to, you know, the entire public health situation, right? Certainly, Trump can't institute a national mask requirement, but it would certainly have been possible for him to, you know, start wearing a mask in public a month and a half earlier than he did and not discourage mask wearing tacitly in all the various ways that he's done. And he has, throughout this disease, had the power of sort of public speechifying, the power of making statements. He attempted to sort of command the situation with his nightly press conferences for a while. In that sense, you know, if he if he can use the bully pulpit for his reelection, then I don't see how you can sort of absolve him for the way he has or hasn't used the bully pulpit in the last few months. Do you think there's been any kind of consistent public health message emanating, not from not from the experts around Trump, but from the president himself? 
The very simple reason why Trump should not use the bully pulpit more is that when he wades in to political debates, he very often makes them worse. Not so much because anything he does or says is particularly reckless, but because of the way other people react to him. An unfortunate fact is that there are a lot of people involved in our political discourse uh, who will immediately take the opposite position to whatever the president adopts. And we saw that just in the past few weeks. Uh, you know, a month ago, it seemed like everyone was kind of pretty much on board with the idea that children were low-risk spreaders and therefore opening up schools should be one of the first things on our list so we can get people back to work. Um, and yet when the president came down uh, on the side of reopening the schools, a lot of people rushed to the other side. So yeah, I think uh, when the president weighs in on things, a lot of people immediately leap to say the opposite. And that may say bad things about them, but you know that's just a fact of our political discourse we have to deal with. So I think very often the president does <laughs> does better by the country by staying out of certain debates. Well, and I'll sort of jump in here and underscore something that Helen's getting at. And, um, you know, this idea that we have to have our national media pointing to Donald Trump and saying, you know what, COVID is really about Donald Trump. It's about what Donald Trump does, what he says, the signals he sends, the policies he makes. Um, it's simply a misreading of our actual structure of government. It's an actual misreading of the way in which the private sector works here. And we really do need people to be making prudential decisions at the very, not just the local level in terms of government, but the molecular level in terms of our society. And people need to be making you know, smart decisions about how to uh, discriminate between high-risk and low-risk groups, how to keep uh, you know, a relatively sound degree of uh, separation between these groups if there's a chance that someone in a low-risk group may be infected and could perhaps uh, harm someone in a high-risk group. All of these things have to be done at the societal level. They can't simply be mandated from Washington, D.C., whether it's Donald Trump or, you know, if Joe Biden were president, it would not make any difference. It is something that fundamentally requires personal responsibility. And I think Americans have been trained and have been told that they should not be exercising this kind of personal responsibility. They should not be thinking for themselves. They should be looking to some sort of expert or God figure and deferring to that person. But again, isn't this... I mean, I watched Donald Trump's 2016 campaign where, you know, he literally used that kind of rhetoric, I think, very effectively in many cases, you know, in, in ways that a, shall we say, more libertarian or states rights oriented style of Republican would not. Right. Like Trump basically said, look, there is a national role, a national federal role in dealing with things like the opioid epidemic. You need a national strategy on the offshoring and factory closures, right? You know, he would go around the country and give speeches in towns that had factories closed. And people would say a version of what you're saying now, Dan, like, oh, you know, well, this is an organic process and it's it's a molecular process. And the decisions that are made by individual actors can't be micromanaged in D.C. And Trump basically said to hell with that. The national government is powerful and we actually need a policy to deal with people taking jobs overseas, right? Well, so Ross, no. it just seems I mean, it weird actually, to retreat to retreat to that rhetoric no, in the you, face you're, you're of a fixated, more immediate crisis. on a single point here, which is always, if Trump has a power in one field, he must have a power in every field. He must be a kind of omnipotent figure. And that's not correct. 
the federal government does I have, have a proper role. I never claimed that Donald Trump is an omnipotent figure. Well, I just want to put that on the record. It's, it's, it is the, it, no, it is the presumption of this conversation right now. But in fact, the, the federal government has a role in trade policy historically that exceeds uh, what its role in healthcare policy has been. And that's just a, you know, a fact of the way the U.S. Constitution works and the way our governments work. Uh, the United States is, you know, facing foreign competitors, facing entities like the People's Republic of China, uh, which cannot be confronted by a locality or by a state, but which can, in fact, be confronted by the federal government. COVID-19 is a threat of a different kind. It's coming not from uh, the outside at this point. It's now coming from within the country. And it's coming not from, you know, a sort of conscious entity uh, from the outside. It's rather a uh, you know, a phenomenon of individuals communicating the disease to one another right here. So the fact that there is a division between what uh, Donald Trump can do with national power and what he can't do does not mean that uh, there's an inconsistency here. It just means that there really is a, uh, you know, a pattern to what he uh, is able to apply his abilities to. And COVID-19, some of these natural disasters, I think, are not in that category. If you go back, right, to the period of, let's say, you know, one to two months between when the coronavirus first appeared in China and, you know, the fact that it was dangerous became clear and the period when it started to really hit New York City, you had this zone where the president did do something that, you know, used his actual federal powers, right? He instituted some kind of travel ban on people coming from China, and we can debate how effective that was. But that was real. He did that. And then there was a six-week period, right, where, you know, if you looked at his rhetoric, he consistently downplayed the likely severity of the problem, made what turned out to be totally false predictions about having the virus under control. And that was the period when, um, you know, and this this part was not Trump's fault per se, although it is his executive branch, but where the CDC and the FDA, but especially the CDC sort of fell down on the job in terms of testing and containing the virus. And, at the end of that period, you had the huge outbreak in New York City, which also reflected disastrous policy choices on the part of local officials and state officials there. But the state and local officials right now, I mean, especially Andrew Cuomo, have pretty high approval ratings, right? In part, just because they rhetorically seem to take the virus seriously. So, so it seems to me that they're both was First, a clear window for for some kind of federal action where the president missed the boat. And second, that there is a political upside to even if you're doing a bad job or even if it's an act of God and beyond your control, just seeming sort of rhetorically in control in a way this president struggles to do. Do you think that's wrong? I do think it's wrong. Uh, first of all, regarding his window of opportunity to act, uh, he took action, and the actions he was able to take were marginal. So, you know, the president is very proud of what he did in terms of trying to restrict travel into the United States as the uh, coronavirus was breaking out. Uh, we can say, okay, well, even if he if that succeeded, even if that was exactly what Donald Trump thought was needed to be done, and, and he did it, uh, obviously it, it was not sufficient to stop the disease from reaching the levels that it has reached. Now, if he had not done that, if he had just, you know, let more people come in uh, with the virus, what effect would that have had? Well, it would have made things even worse, right? So uh, the fact that Donald Trump has limited powers that can have a marginal effect is, a, I think, just a reality that has to be accepted here rather than saying that the overall situation is something over which he has control. 
Regarding the relative popularity ratings of President Trump and uh, Governor Cuomo, um, you know, I mean, sometimes a democracy gives you an injustice. And in the case here, I think Andrew Cuomo uh, has a lot more lives on his hands from having sent uh, people with uh, the coronavirus into nursing homes and uh, other places that, um, you know, couldn't turn patients away um, or, or people away who had the disease and then spread it to um, the most vulnerable elderly populations. That is catastrophic. And it's something he should uh, face serious electoral repercussions for. You know, it's a question of whether the American people are going to look seriously enough at where the responsibility actually lies in our federal system relative, you know, the president versus the government. But surely this goes back to the question of rhetoric and presentation as a part of no, statesmanship, No, it doesn't, because not right? everything is a matter. No, absolutely not. This idea that you can magically cure things no, with no, no, words but that's has not to even, be resisted. But, that's, but that's, not, that's, that's not per se the point. I started this conversation by asking both of you what the president could have done differently. And Dan, your answer was nothing. And Helen, your answer was he's done well by to the extent that he's minimized his public presentation. But what I'm saying is that what you're describing as the injustice, Dan, of Cuomo being popular in his disastrous response reflects Cuomo's use of the arts of public rhetoric and statesmanship, which is part of the president's job description, indeed a central part. And Well, look, I mean, you're asking, yes, you're asking a basic Machiavellian question here. Is it important to seem virtuous even if you're not? Yes, And in sure. Cuomo's case, that's what he's done. He's been able to, you know, create the appearance, perhaps, of a certain kind of competence. But, you know, I'll, I'll mention two things here. The first is that in terms of the way that the media has reported uh, the COVID-19 crisis, and even the way this uh, conversation is going right now, you can certainly see that there is uh, a tendency to, uh, you know, in all of the elite media, to give Donald Trump the worst possible reading and to be rather more generous uh, towards uh, Democrats. I have to agree with Dan here. Uh, Ross, you seem to be proposing that if only Trump were a better political communicator, he could be more like that great hero, Andrew Cuomo, to which I can only respond that being more like Andrew Cuomo is not a thing that I would like my politicians to be interested in. And uh, I also think the media plays a bigger role here than you are giving it credit for. Uh, Trump could have literally lifted the script from every Andrew Cuomo press conference, and it would have been covered very, very differently. First of all, I'm not saying that wouldn't it have been great if the national response had been more like New York's response in those first few crucial weeks. I am saying that if your political goal is to govern the country successfully, which requires, among other things, being reelected, then yes, you you know, the presumably the Republican Party and position would be better if Donald Trump had some of the communication skills of Andrew Cuomo, which is, a, yeah, it is a Machiavellian point, I suppose, but it's kind of an essential one. And it's, it's just very, it's very hard for me to imagine a world in which um, maybe not the two of you, but where most Republicans or conservatives were willing to, you know, look at 200,000 dead Americans in the final year of a Democratic president's first term in office and say, well, it's time for the American public to grow up and realize that President Obama doesn't have magical powers and there was nothing that he could have done. I mean, if you had 200,000 dead Americans under a Democratic president, Republicans would be screaming bloody murder about it. And I think completely understandably so, which, you know, I... Well, I, Ross, look, you could say that, yeah, if, if the president had the ability to sort of bamboozle the public and to uh, give them a sense that they are, you know, sort of healthier than they actually are 
through uh, very persuasive language that that would make us all feel better. Give them the sense that he knows what's going on and he has a plan to deal with it, right? I mean, well, that's... No, that's not what he should do because he doesn't know what's going on. Nobody <laughs> well, that... knows what's going on. No, I'm quite, I'm quite serious about this. I think, I think we're in a, a very dangerous position. And in fact, not just us, but the whole world, because we're assuming that we know things about this disease that we really don't. And we should be very careful here and we should be very cautious, you know, with our local circumstances, as opposed to assuming that we've got, you know, some sort of master plan that's going to deal with this. I don't think any of us actually knew six months ago that this was going to be quite as uh, severe a problem right now as it still is. And we need to also keep in mind the costs of policies like shutdowns, for example, on um, psychology, on suicide rates, on other deaths of despair. There are any number of contingencies and complexities here which um, I think we need to be honest about. And we, we can't simply say, you know what, we're just going to clap for Tinkerbell and that's going okay, to resurrect Okay, good, good. Uh, no, you know, but, but let's, let's, let's stick with that point, right? So forget Donald Trump for a minute. Just articulate it in your own, from your own point of view. What have we learned? We've learned something, right, about the disease over the last four to six months. Um, we have a lot of rain. We have a wide range of outcomes in different countries. We have observed and absorbed many of the costs of lockdowns right now. So accepting that this varies from state to state, what should be our policy going into the fall? Let's say we have a residual lockdown right now, right, with some with some limits on gatherings and, you know, possibly we'll end up with school closures and so on. Is that a mistake? I mean, were the Swedes right to assume that we could reach herd immunity at a pace that would, you know, save our economy? Like, what what have we learned? What have you guys learned? Well, look, Sweden still has, uh, you know, per million uh, more COVID-19 fatalities than we have. And maybe that's going to change, you know, over the course of the next several months. But uh, I'm not quite prepared to say that the, the Swedish model is the correct model. On the other hand, I, I am less confident than you are, Ross, that we already have uh, as clear lessons as we would like to have about this disease and how best to approach it. And that's one reason why I'm emphasizing that this um, sort of most localist approach possible is what I think is the only thing you can do. I also think that's the biggest thing we've learned is how big the difference in risk is for different uh, demographic groups. There are still today a lot of states where most of their coronavirus deaths took place in nursing homes. A majority in uh, facilities that house, you know, less than 1% of the U.S. population. That's that's a huge thing that we've learned in the past few months. And maybe that should tell us that focusing on those high-risk groups would have been better uh, to do from the beginning and certainly better to do from here on out. Uh, because uh, unlike you, Ross, I'm not entirely confident that we have weathered the worst of the economic storm. Um, I think that a lot of the jobs that are currently... Um, being thought about as layoffs or temporary furloughs are going to end up being permanent. A lot of small businesses are going to close no matter what happens um, with unemployment insurance or any other mitigating uh, measures from here on out. So I think uh, the economic cost of the lockdown could be a lot higher than we're thinking right now. So between that and the concentration in nursing homes, uh, I think we should start looking at opening up. But we have, right, we have started opening up, right? And the challenge is precisely that I'll flip the script and argue a version of you guys' case, right? Which is that the power of the state as manifested in lockdowns is maybe less significant than 
the choices that people make themselves to socially distance, not go to restaurants, you know, not not go shopping, not go to the mall and so on. Right. So you have, you know, if you look at trends in foot traffic and open table reservations and all of these things, you see sort of steep declines before states implement lockdowns. And what you see now in states that have opened up or partially opened up is that when there's a surge of cases of the virus, people react to some extent, the way that the way that they did before. And you get a kind of cycle, you get a reopening, people start going to bars and restaurants again, then the virus surges, then people stop. But that means that the economic pain exists to some extent, independent of public policy, it exists so long as the virus is an active force in American society, right? So I mean, to me, the the stronger anti lockdown case is psychological rather than economic, right? I, I don't see how you avoid the massive economic hit from this virus with or without formal lockdowns. But the lockdown policy, the, the sort of extremity of it does seem to generate an intense psychological toll um, that, you know, is manifest in the most extreme form in rising suicide rates and so on. But I think it's also manifest in the protests of the summer. I think there's a reasonable argument that you don't get massive protests across the U.S., even though they are officially about racial justice and police brutality, that you just don't get those protests without the two-month lockdown policy beforehand. Helen, do you think the lockdowns caused the protests? Absolutely. A fact about the Russian Revolution that a lot of people don't know is that the winter of 1916-17 was one of the harshest on record and that everybody in St. Petersburg had basically been in lockdown because of the weather uh, and the harsh winter for months and months and months until the end of February when suddenly temperatures shot up and everybody went outside and a week later the Romanov dynasty was no more. Um, so, yeah, when people are locked up for a long time and then suddenly you let them out, they run into the streets and they go crazy. Well, and you only let them out for the protests. I mean, that's one of the other key things here. People can't really go to work as normal. They can't really go to you know school or whatever educational opportunities they would have as normal. They can't socialize as normal. Practically, the only thing they're allowed to do is to you know congregate outside in large numbers and uh, burn down a police department. Um if that's your only option and that's the only kind of social activity you can uh, take part in, a lot of people are going to opportunistically, uh, you know, glom onto it. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the fall election and whether conservatives should wish for a Donald Trump second term. We'll be right back. As a global leader in experiential education, Drexel University encourages students to both gain knowledge and find new ways to turn that knowledge into action. Drexel is proud to be one of 39 private institutions in the nation to achieve recognition by the Carnegie Classification of Institutions of Higher Education as an R1 research institution, affirming this Philadelphia University's commitment to discovery and innovation. Experience what education can be at drexel.edu. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. 
And we're back. So I want to start with the larger cultural upheaval that's affecting maybe elite institutions in particular, but also corporate America, sort of the general tug to the left that's going on in American institutions right now as a reaction in part against the presidency of Donald Trump, right? That just as you see tugs to the right under Democratic presidents, you get tugs to the left under Republican presidents. And I'm going to submit and then have my guests disagree that the strength of this tug and the weakness and incapacity of Trump himself in response to it, his inability to sort of harness or marshal public opinion against um, against the leftward swing in American life is a reason for conservatives to wish that he loses the election in November, because a Trump second term would probably be an extension of the end of his first term where the right clings to political power in Washington, D.C. and continues to lose cultural ground just about everywhere you look. Helen, I suspect that you disagree and that you will be supporting Donald Trump in November. Tell me why I'm wrong. Yeah, I disagree vehemently. I disagree very strongly. I think any conservative out there who's wishing for a Donald Trump loss is just flat out crazy. Winning is always better than losing. And if you're somebody who supports the things that Donald Trump campaigned on, you especially should be hoping that he wins so that the GOP doesn't just revert to business as usual. Uh, I kind of knew when Trump was elected that there would be a lot of growing pains, more than for most presidents, uh, because he was such an outsider. Uh, but I do think uh, there is an observable learning curve. I think, uh, I don't know how much he's gotten better, but the people on his staff have gotten better and four years wiser. And I think a second term would be a lot smoother. Uh, I also think that I have been just more disappointed than I thought I would be by the behavior of the left in response to Donald Trump. The inability of so many people in the Democratic Party and uh, not a few in the Republican establishment to accept the outcome of the 2016 election uh, and just pitching tantrums and throwing bogus impeachments. And I really think it's important that that kind of behavior not be rewarded. Uh, so those are two good reasons to be hoping that Donald Trump wins. Dan, can you give me more? Yeah, well, certainly if you look at policy, if you voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and you wanted to see a degree of change in our foreign policy, if you wanted to see conservative justices put on the Supreme Court, or at least as close as the Republican Party seems to be able to get to putting conservative justices on the Supreme Court, um, then it seems to me that you have to support Donald Trump and hope that he will see through the project that he began in 2016. Uh, in foreign policy, it looks to me as if Trump is uh, now has a stronger handle on things, that we're not going to get uh, appointments of neoconservatives like John Bolton in a second Trump administration. Uh, I see some promising uh, personnel uh, moves in terms of uh, the next ambassador, for example, that Trump wants to appoint to Germany and uh, in various other places as well. I think you're actually starting to see uh, the kind of uh, brains trust forming uh, to see through a more restrained foreign policy in a second Trump administration. And of course, foreign policy is the thing that the president really has the most direct control over. As far as the courts are concerned, this is uh, an existential matter for conservatives. Uh, in terms of religious liberty, it's certainly an existential uh, question in terms of the lives of the unborn. Uh, conservatives have been bitterly disappointed by Justice John Roberts and to a uh, somewhat lesser extent also by uh, Neil Gorsuch. 
Uh, however, the idea of having uh, Joe Biden in there, probably with the Democratic Senate, and having uh, more justices like Kagan or like um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that would obviously be even worse for conservatives. So the you know conservative approach to the courts has been uh, a mixed success, and in the eyes of many, it's been a failure. But it hasn't been as great a failure as you would get with a, a court that had uh, appointees coming from uh, the left wing of the Democratic Party. Talk a little bit more about the idea of a brain trust, Dan, because I think we disagree well, you know, on this. Trump, I mean, uh, came who, from out, yeah. who, 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 I mean, imagine a Trump second term, right? Right now, the Trump cabinet has an awful lot of acting, non-confirmed cabinet rank officers. The Trump White House has partially emptied. Now, I'm sure you're glad of some of the emptying because it reflects, as you say, people who Trump hired who are either very conventional establishment Republicans or, in Bolton's case, um, much more hawkish than the president himself. I think that's reasonable, but it, it doesn't seem to me that there is a populist brain trust around the president. And by populism, I mean people who who would agree with your perspective on foreign policy, which is to say containing China and otherwise very restrained in military adventurism and in domestic policy, uh, you know, being willing to break with sort of Reaganite views on things like infrastructure spending, let's say. I, I think such a populist brain trust exists outside the White House. If you put me in charge of assembling such a brain trust for Trump in his second term. I think I could I could do a, a decent job and maybe we would, you know, hire the two of you. But I don't see any evidence that Trump himself sort of sees that as his mission or that there's a group coalescing around him that has that kind of clear agenda. Trump's most sort of successful in terms of duration cabinet official, right, is Mike Pompeo, who, as far as I can tell, is still obsessed with conflict with Iran, right? So who who's the brain trust? Well, so I think that um, you're beginning to see the right kind of appointments being contemplated and in some cases being made. And obviously, uh, on the even of, a, of an election, uh, you're not having as much action in terms of appointments as you would get uh, after an election and after you have uh, you know a second term coming on. But no, I mean, someone like Douglas McGregor, for example, being mooted as a uh, appointee for um, ambassador to Germany, that's very promising. And there are a lot of other people I hear in the pipeline of similar caliber and similar views. Donald Trump, you know, took uh, a couple of years here, and, I'm, and I regret that it took as long as it did, to find out that uh, people like John Bolton really are not on his side. And, um, you know, Mike Pompeo, I, I uh, you know, he has certainly been persistent. He's you know stuck around for a long time, and he may stick around for a longer time yet. Uh, and he is someone who comes from a more conventional Republican background. But I don't think he's uh, the whole story. And I think there's actually a lot of things, uh, interesting things happening on the uh, personnel side of the administration, sometimes in the less high profile roles that are indicative of uh, a new approach to staffing. Who do you, you, who do you, who do you trust? Who do you trust in the White House? Give me, give me somebody um, well, who you who you trust. Who who you first of all, in, in terms of you know things like trade policy, I think you've had a brain trust from the beginning. Robert Lighthizer, for example, I think uh, is an indication that uh, the Trump administration has had its uh, act together with respect to its trade policy uh, almost from the beginning. I get the impression that with uh, appointments like uh, Douglas McGregor, they now have the same sort of focus with respect to uh, the foreign policy as well. Uh, Mike Pompeo is a more conventional Republican, yes. Uh, but I think that uh, a lot of the people around him are going to be uh, more in the Trumpist vein. There have been uh, a lot of uh, battles uh, lately 
where people are saying that Trump is appointing people who are too conservative, uh, you know, the former head of the uh, Claremont Institute, for example. Uh, but this is actually what Trump was elected to do, to make sure that uh, the message that we're sending out to the world is a message that reflects uh, the changes here in this country with respect to our foreign policy, and that we no longer are in the business of militarily promoting democracy and trying to engage in regime change operations here, there, and everywhere. But rather, we're talking about America's fundamental values, and we hope that that example is what will change countries as opposed to skullduggery to kind of forcibly alter uh, other regimes. Helen, let me let me go back to your initial point that winning that winning is always better than losing, which is a powerful point. So in 2016, Donald Trump ran as, among many other things, the candidate of standing for the national anthem. Right. I mean, I, I think that that's, you know, that was sort of a condensed symbol of Trump's campaign in 2016, where he used Colin Kaepernick as a foil to attack athletes who didn't stand for the national anthem. Now, here we are four years later, and we're in a cultural landscape where kneeling for the national anthem is the norm and standing for the national anthem is now, you know, seen as sort of the act of, of protest. Now, this is a small condensed symbol that is obviously doesn't have immediate policy implications, but it seems like a pretty striking cultural defeat that conservatives have absorbed and I think would not have absorbed had Donald Trump not been president, in part because of the fact that Trump's unpopularity, the fact that most Americans really don't like him, has created all of this space for you know, left-wing argument and left-wing movements to effectively gain large amounts of cultural ground. Now, I know you don't think that's totally wrong. Tell me why that doesn't just happen even more so across the next four years, where you're effectively trading maybe one more Supreme Court seat for even more sweeping cultural defeat. I'm actually uh, not sure I agree with any part of Good. the premise of your question. Um, first of all, uh, your logic sounds like an argument for electing McGovern in 1972, and the 60s would have ended sooner uh, if we'd gone further to the left, which just doesn't sound right as a matter of history. Also, as a matter of history, I disagree that none of this would be happening if Hillary Clinton had won in 2016. I think it's entirely possible that the fringe left would have felt empowered by that victory, uh, and we would be seeing many of the same things that we're seeing now. But that's actually not the important question. The relevant question is, will these forces be stronger or weaker if Biden wins in 2020. I think that the Trump campaign's message of you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America is exactly the right one. I don't think anybody expects that Joe Biden himself is secretly a closet, you know, Sandinista radical. But I do think a lot of people are worried that he's so old and out of it that he would be a figurehead. So whatever aggravating uh, effect Donald Trump might have on the psyches of leftists who can't stand that he won in 2016, uh, I, I think that effect just pales next to the empowerment these forces would feel under a Biden presidency. But it's, it's not just about em the empowerment of those particular forces, right? It's also about public opinion writ large and the pressures that are put on, for instance, you know, mayors and governors in terms of dealing with riots and urban unrest, right? Where right now, there's this 
sense of where that every every event is about Trump and every choice that, let's say, a blue state governor or a blue state mayor makes is seen in light of whether it helps or hurts Trump. Right. So you have this, you know, you have pressure right now on blue state mayors to, you know, refuse federal aid or something in terms of in terms of dealing with soaring murder rates, because that's seen as as, you know, as boosting Trump in some sense. Right. In a Biden presidency, that kind of thing goes away. Um, In a Biden presidency, you get a thermostatic swing in public opinion the way you do in almost every presidency where moderate voters who are right now very worried about. Donald Trump's capacities to handle the coronavirus and haven't yet internalized the lessons that you guys were preaching in the first segment of our show would swing to being more worried about the overreach potentially of liberalism and would be more likely to vote for Republican candidates in 2022. And I just want to push on your historical analogy, Helen, right, which is that, yes, if Donald Trump were Richard Nixon, which is to say, you know, for all his faults, a very effective politician who was capable of building in the end a 60 percent majority coalition against McGovern, then, of course, it would be ludicrous for Republicans or conservatives to to want the liberal Democrat to win. But if Trump is a figure more like George Wallace, sort of a representative of a sort of permanent minority faction who can only win through electoral college luck, then having him in power doesn't i mean it's a it's a different it's a different case right it's like you know would you if you were a conservative in 1968 would you rather have hubert humphrey or george wallace maybe you'd rather have hubert humphrey this is the question with trump at some point if if you're going to actually govern the country you actually need to win a majority of the country you can't just rely on electoral college minorities for generations yet to come and having your standard bearer be this deeply unpopular figure um, who constantly hands cultural <laughs> victories to the left seems like it pushes that moment ever further out of reach. I have high hopes that the standard bearer for populist conservatism that comes after Trump will be a lot uh, <laughs> more normal uh, and more competent than he is. Uh, I have every hope uh, in the next generation. But I really am struggling to grasp uh, where you're coming from on this line of questioning, Ross, just because are you really saying that if Biden wins, the local government of Portland is finally for the first time in its existence going to start cracking down on Antifa terrorism and not let these 20-somethings in black roam the streets with impunity? That just doesn't seem realistic. That just doesn't sound like them. I mean, I think it's less the government of Portland per se. Portland, I think, is a distinctive case in the sense that they have had a kind of anarchist protest culture that the government has basically tolerated for a long time before the George Floyd protests. But no, I mean, I'm thinking more of cities like Atlanta, Chicago, Boston, New York, and so on. Cities that have not been run the way Portland has been run for the last few years, to put it mildly. Cities that right now have murder rates spiking that they need to bring under control. Those are the cities where Trump creates particular pressures, you know, not to be seen as cooperating with what liberalism has decided is a white nationalist president. Right. Like that's those are the kind of specific pressures that that I'm thinking of. Portland is a special case. 
I think that applies to uh, to other institutions too. I mean, you know, obviously I have a personal stake in this since I work for a institution that is widely reputed to be liberal and has has had its own Trump era um, internal controversies. But just about every liberal institution right now in higher education, in media, and you know, and 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 so on, there is this pressure that Trump himself creates where everyone has to be on side against the great threat of Trump. And so all of those institutions in a Biden presidency, I think, would feel potentially some of that pressure relaxed. Not necessarily. No, not at all. I mean, come on. You're saying that everything was going smoothly for conservatives in higher education, for example, until Donald Trump came along and then the inflamed left suddenly uh, decided to start acting out. That's not the way it's happened. In fact, conservatives have been losing ground in these institutions, the media and uh, higher education in particular, for generations. And the fact that now it's being uh, advertised in a way that it perhaps wasn't quite as much during the Obama years uh, is not a change in the substance. Uh, the, the thing that really matters here is the you know sort of control of the institutions themselves and what kind of ethos they embody, whether or not that's being expressed as, you know, sort of flamboyantly as it is now, or whether it's deeper in the institutional um, power structure, as it was uh, during Obama or during the Clinton years or whatever. But uh, conservatives actually are in a better position knowing who their enemies are, and knowing just how biased the media is against them, knowing just how um, ruthless higher education is and preventing conservatives from getting, uh, you know, tenured positions and so forth. I think there's a great deal to be said for the uh, sort of confrontation with reality that Donald Trump is bringing about. And it does seem to me that as you see crime rates spike by 24 percent, you know, in the 50 largest cities across the country right now, you're going to see a significant change in public opinion. And there's a limit to how much demagoguing against um, Donald Trump is actually going to be effective before people say, wait a minute, the street crime that I'm seeing in New York or in Chicago is not being caused by Donald Trump. It's being caused by mayors and by city councils that are far too lenient on criminals. So let's let's talk about that that scenario in a world where Trump loses before we wrap up. Um, Helen, you you mentioned the idea that there exists after Trump potentially a more competent and serious form of populist conservatism waiting in the wings. Talk a little bit about that. Who who leads the post-Trump Republican Party in 2024 or beyond? Yeah, I, I think that there are a lot of candidates and there will be more candidates for that spot if Trump wins, uh, which is another reason why I hope that that happens, uh, because it will show that that's the path forward for victory uh, for the GOP. It used to be my consolation when I thought about uh, whether there was a, a chance that the GOP would just revert back to the Romney-Ryan default, that I thought, you know, they can't just do that because if the GOP goes back to the Romney-Ryan default, it will lose. <laughs> uh, if you go back to those policies, you're not going to win in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. Um, but as I've watched uh, the GOP over the last few years of the Trump presidency, I have realized that there are a lot of people who would sort of be fine with that, <laughs> who would be okay if the GOP went back to losing under that set of failed economic policies. Uh, you look at people uh, in the Never Trump movement, it seems like some of them would be very happy for the GOP to go back to losing. Um, they really are the the Washington generals of, of, of policy. Um, so that's why I'm really hoping that Donald Trump wins in 2020, to show that these ideas uh, are the way forward for the party, because if he shows that, 
uh, then I think it matters less who actually picks up the standard. If it's somebody as bright and articulate as Senator Josh Hawley or whether it's somebody else. Dan, your prophecies. Yeah, I'll underscore uh, what uh, Helen has just said in that there is a certain uh, large component, actually, of the conservative movement, uh, which stands to gain if um, conservative leaders uh, lose. Um, you know, it's it's notorious that uh, political magazines, for example, get more subscriptions when the uh, opposing uh, party is in office. Um, you know, if you're writing um, fundraising copy for a think tank, it's much easier to write, uh, you know, an attack on someone than it is to write uh, a defense of some policy. Um, so there's, in a way, the, the conservative movement as an institution is invested in failure. And uh, we see the results of that. I think that's one reason why conservatism was in such a decrepit shape that uh, someone with no political experience whatsoever, like Donald Trump, could come in and actually knock over all of these, you know, highly credentialed and highly articulate uh, conservative leaders that he ran against in uh, 2016. Now, this kind of institutional um, corruption is something that um, hasn't gone away. As Helen mentions, you see it in Never Trump. You see it also in some of the opportunistic uh, moves that people have made towards Trump in some cases. And, uh, you know, whatever happens uh, in 2020, um, this uh, institutional problem is going to remain on the right. So in addition to seeing, um, you know, a sort of Trump plus, a, you know, sort of someone with Trump's uh, themes, but with a, you know, very competent, smooth execution in the future, we also, I think, need to see conservative institutions that are geared towards achieving things in policy and in culture, as opposed to simply um, fattening their pockets with panicked, uh, you know, direct mail pitches about how the Democrats are bringing socialism back and, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of other things that uh, rile up the uh, 70 plus year old uh, donors. Um, but I would be very um, cautious, however, of naming who the um, sort of great uh, populist or national conservative hope of the future is going to be in that, um, you know, nobody saw Donald Trump coming. I think Ross and I were both, you know, very, very surprised to see that someone with Donald Trump's background uh, became not only the Republican nominee, but became president. And, um, you know, I think in the future, you may actually see more surprises like that and that uh, the old sense of political professionalism uh, is decaying um, as a result of many changes taking place within the country and also um, within, um, within the media and uh, with the rise of, of social media. So maybe Kanye West is going to be the future, maybe um, Tucker Carlson. Uh, but I, I, I'm a little bit skeptical of some of the politicians who've become uh, kind of flashy in the last few years, but um, still seem a bit untried and wet behind the ears. Well, so then let this be the last point that I that I press you both on. Right. Um, so one, I think I think, Dan, you're absolutely right about the the extent to which there still exists this strong conservative infrastructure that just wants to fundraise against the threat of liberalism, doesn't want to govern um, and would be perfectly happy in that sense with the Biden presidency, even if Biden himself is not the ideal foil. For the, on the political side, though, I think if you brought, um, you know, Helen's great hope, Josh Hawley, onto our show and somehow hooked him up to a lie detector, which politicians sadly won't let you do, he would, I think, much rather run in 2024 if Donald Trump had lost in 2020, right? That this, for, for a certain kind of politician, at least, I don't think victory is always better than defeat because American politics moves in cycles and you have openings and opportunities when the opposition party is in power that you don't have when you yourself, when your own party is in power, especially if 
the politician leading your party is catastrophically unpopular. And I mean, this to me remains, you know, the the conservative case for Trump losing is that if you want Josh Hawley to win an election in 2024 or a figure like him, then he's more likely to do it running against an even more decrepit Biden or Biden's running mate in 2024 than he is as Trump's heir. And then especially, and this is the last point I'll make, especially if what Trump what Trump represents is not the sort of policies that he's embraced or half embraced, but a kind of own the libs celebrity culture, right? In which case his likely heir is not Holly, it's not even Tucker Carlson, it's someone like his own son, Don Jr., right? Which just sort of propagates the the cycle of, you know, maybe this guy can govern, oh, actually he can't ever deeper into the future. Um, so after that rant, I'll give you both the last word to explain once again why I'm why I'm wrong. Well, first of all, I think that is extremely, uh, you know, a very cynical statement, uh, Ross. If you think that, you know, Josh Hawley has uh, such a hollow core that he would rather advance his own personal prospects uh, with your scenario for 2024 at the expense of, you know, seeing. Um, Joe Biden, you know, put a few people on the Supreme Court and at the expense of seeing uh, what Joe Biden will do to foreign policy. Um, that strikes me as I'll a plead, sacrifice. I'll plead, that guilty. No I'll plead guilty to that, to that cynicism. Sure. Well, look, but, but look, if, the, if that's your view of Josh Hawley, that he's that cynical of a politician, then I don't want Josh Hawley to be a Republican nominee if that's who he is. I don't want a guy who is, you know, uh, basically no different from a Mitt Romney, for example, who had a history of changing his positions and changing his ideological complexion based on what he thought would win. And in fact, I really dislike and would push back against one of the premises uh, of this conversation, which is that popularity is, uh, you know, sort of the most important thing. And the fact that, uh, you know, polls show uh, that Donald Trump is unpopular uh, in a large part of the country is therefore, uh, you know, the, the last word on Donald Trump. I don't think that's the case at all. It seems to me that Donald Trump, um, you know, he's an imperfect tool, but he is actually trying to change things in a very dramatic way with respect to our economic policy, our foreign policy, and to see through the conservative promises uh, on the Supreme Court. And those are going to be, uh, there's going to be some turbulence in that project. You're necessarily going to take some hits. You know, Ronald Reagan was very unpopular in 1982. Uh, these are the sorts of uh, headwinds you just have to confront and push through if you're ever actually going to achieve anything and be a success at the end of your years like Ronald Reagan was. And the idea that because you are unpopular at a given time means that you should just kind of give up and do something that's more popular is not only cynical, it's it's a recipe for losing. It's, it's suicidal. I have some thoughts in response, but I'll just give Helen the last word for the show. <laughs> Uh, running to succeed a two-term president from the same party is always a challenge, uh, but I don't think that's a reason for even the most cynical version of Josh Hawley to root for a Biden victory, uh, because after four years of Joe Biden's Supreme Court nominations, uh, that's going to drastically limit what uh, a President Hawley can do, what the state of religious freedom precedents would be after those four years uh, would probably leave his Supreme Court a lot less wiggle room to defend uh, faithful Christians. Or four years of Joe Biden foreign policy. There would, <laughs> that would drastically limit what a President Hawley could do in terms of furthering the populist agenda. So I stick by my cardinal principle of politics, which I think applies to everyone in both parties at all times, which is winning is always better than losing. And it is this time, too. I think that's an excellent note on which to say that's our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. 
Dan, Helen, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Ross. Thanks, Ross. You're very welcome. If you have a question you want to hear us debate in the future, share it with us in a voicemail by calling 347-915-4324. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. The Argument is a production of the New York Times Opinion Section. Our team includes Phoebe Lett, Paula Schumann, and Pedro Rafael Rosado. Special thanks to Brad Fisher and Kristen Lynn. And don't worry, listeners, this is just a one-episode right-wing coup, and regular programming will resume next week. Ready to set off on your captivating journey into the botanical world? NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you to pursue your passion as a budding plant person. Guided by professionals, dig into gardening, botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Grow your skills with online learning your way. Register at nybg.org.